Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I tend to ask whether you have any question after such a, an introduction by Bob Sayer, for whom I'm very, very grateful because he sacrifices so much of his time to accompany me in your great country. It's a great honor for me to stand in your presence. But it's also a very special burden, a big confusion, because I'm going to speak about a situation that has been controversial for so many, many, many years. The conflict between the Israeli Jews and the Palestinian Arabs. Not between Jews and Arabs, but between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. And whatever I might say might look like taking a knife and moving it in a lively wound. And that hurts the ones or the others if it does not hurt everyone over there. What is wrong between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs? Why things went so bad and they go from bad to worse? What is wrong? Who is right and who is wrong? Is there any hope for some peaceful solution? These are the questions I will try very humbly to discuss with you this evening without pretending having a clear answer to any of these hard questions. What is wrong? Why this conflict is lasting over a hundred years? Is it as some people want it to be a conflict between religions? Let us say Judaism against Islam and Christianity? That has never been so in the past. And that is not so even now. If it's not a conflict of religions, would it be a racial conflict, let us to say, Semites against non-Semites? But who are the Semites? And who is more Semite? The Jew of Phoenix, who has never been in the Middle East, or the Palestinian who has never been outside Palestine. Don't we both pride ourselves to be the descendants, the children and grandchildren of an Iraqi citizen whose name was Abraham? I am more Semite than the majority of the Jews in Israel or respect to them. It has never been a conflict of races. 
So what remains? To prepare war after war after war. What remains is very simple and utterly complicated. The conflict is about identical claims of two nations on the same territory. It's exactly a territorial conflict. For you Americans, like you are, today you live in Phoenix, tomorrow you go live in Los Angeles, you change to Boston, you go to Atlanta, you go back to Detroit, you are free. You don't have any more the sense of belonging to a piece of land. But for us, our land is so sacred for us. We teach our children to respect their lands because we tell them, you might be walking on the bones and the ashes of our ancestors. Our Jewish brothers and sisters say this is our promised land. Oh, good for you, who promised you that land? They say God, our God promised us our land. Okay, I never saw that he ordered you to kill us, to deport us. And if he did so, he's not right. He could not be God. Palestinians say, we are not Jews. We don't believe in your religion. We respect what you believe. All the time, you do not infringe on our human rights. This is also our ancestral land. We have been here, say the Palestinians to the Jews, we have been here 2,000 years ago when you were deported, not by a Palestinian leader, but by a Roman emperor. We saw you going and we stayed there. Now you are coming or coming back, fine. You are welcome with us. We cannot welcome you without us. You want our jacket? Take it. But if you want our, our, our trousers? No. Because we cannot strip. And strip fees has never been a Palestinian phenomenon. <laughs> and both sides pretend the land belongs to me say the Jew. And the Palestinians say, no, the land belongs to me. And that's why we went into war after war after war. I survived nine wars. And the last was always more devastating than the previous ones. And that is enough. This is why I entitled my second book, we belong to the land, not the land belongs to us. And I tell you from the very beginning, ladies and gentlemen, unless we Jews and Palestinians realize that the land, name it Israel, 
name it Palestinian. If we don't learn how to share our lives on that land, that land will continue vomiting all of us out. I think that Jews are right to say we need a home, a homeland. We need freedom of expression. My goodness, they are utterly right. And that makes for me no problem. The problem started when the home they wanted meant that I become homeless. That could not be acceptable. When the land they wanted meant that my people becomes a nation of refugees. How can I accept that? When the freedom of expression they wanted for themselves meant to reduce the Palestinians into either refugees or into second class or no class citizen or to reduce them into huge prisons like is the case now in Gaza and in the West Bank. I have nothing against the existence of the state of Israel. Long live that state of Israel. My problem is not the existence. It is the qualities of that existence. It is my socio-political status as a non-Jew in the Jewish state. And that is a problem, a serious problem. A problem that has destabilized all the Middle East and it affected and affects you even here in your beautiful America. And only after 61 years, the world started to understand that the key to peace and the key to stabilization in all the Middle East and in the world, that key is called the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a way to restore dignity and a sense of justice to the Palestinians who have never ever persecuted the Jews, rejected the Jews, or hated the Jews. In order to illustrate all of that, or before we have to ask who is right and who is wrong, I hope you agree with me that the side who is right is the side who have the generosity and the courage to say, I am also right. And the side who is adamantly wrong is the one who says, I am the only one right. And that's why I can easily say the conflict is not between a wrong and a right, it's between two rights that have been absolutized so much that both became wrong. So much that our Jewish brothers and sisters for 61 years what did they want? Shalom, peace, nothing but peace.
But they had, instead of peace, war after war after war, fear piled on fear, and nothing of the peace that they wanted. While the Palestinians wanted justice, nothing but justice, only justice. And what they got? Misery upon misery. Deprivation, almost total deprivation. I was in Gaza four weeks ago. What I have seen, it's worse than what I saw in Cambodia, in Tanzania, uh, everywhere I never saw poverty, deprivation, and brokenness like in Gaza. Why is that? I think we went crazy, Jews and Palestinians. Each one wants his own peace, his own justice, and we forgot that the common prophets to the Jews, Muslims and Christians, still remind us, if you want peace and security, fine. In order to reach that, pursue justice and integrity. And all the time we do not merge these two realities, peace and security, as an outcome of justice and integrity, we will never have neither peace nor justice. And there has been a city called the city of peace. Do you know what's the name of that city? Urshalem, Jerusalem. It was the city of peace because the king who was there was a king of justice, Melchizedek, the king of justice. And we need almost to marry these peace and justice together. In order to go further, I allow myself to introduce me myself so you don't know, you don't ignore who is speaking with you. I am your brother. I am a Palestinian. I am a proud Palestinian. I have nothing to be ashamed of being Palestinian. And if I was born Palestinian, it's not by accident, it's by providence. And I am a Palestinian Arab, which means my mother language is not English. It is this easy to learn Arabic language. Goodness, why do you laugh? Because you don't believe me. People of little faith. If you have the courage to come with me tomorrow at 4 o'clock, I'm going back home. I will take you to our kindergartens. You will see that there even children speak Arabic. If they do that, they're not more clever than you are. But you need to invest in it. 
Well, we learn to excuse you Americans for languages and geography. <laughs> Once upon the time, not long ago, you had a president who hardly knew where Palestine was and where Israel is. But we learn to excuse people. Palestinian Arab, I am also a Palestinian Arab Christian that complicates the picture and confuses people in America who were used to listen, to read in the media. A Palestinian is automatically a Muslim and a Muslim is a bloodthirsty inclined to violence human beings. Better get rid of him. And here's a man who says, Brothers, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I am a Christian, and I am an Archbishop. How come, Father Shakur? Few years ago, I came to this beautiful country. Two pastors came to welcome me at the airport. One because he wanted to welcome me, and the other because he had too many questions. As soon as I landed, he welcomed me, oh Father Shakur, you welcome me, I asked you some questions. I said, yes please. He said, tell me, how does Mecca look like? I said, I don't know. How come you have never been in Hajj at Mecca? I said, no. But your father must have been in the Mecca. Didn't he tell you how the Mecca looked like? I said, no, my father has never been in Mecca. I understand. Was he converted? I said, yes. When? I said, I remember 2009 years ago. This is what many people think of us Palestinians, of us Muslims, in a very erroneous way. Palestinian Arab Christian, I must confess, ladies and gentlemen, that I discovered one day that I was not born Christian. Thank God, this was a liberating discovery. And truly, I was not born Christian. I don't know what about you. Were you born Christians? No. Or you like, like me? I was born a baby. <laughs> and only a baby. I became Christian later on. Being born a babe, not any babe. I was created on the image and with the likeness of God himself, not more, not less. And that's what I would discover slowly, slowly about my Muslim brothers and my Jewish brothers. They were born babies on the image and with the likeness of God, and they deserve the respect, the love, and the esteem that anybody else deserves. Palestinian Arab Christian. I remember not long ago, for us Palestinians, 
time is differently considered. I never forgave the Swiss for pitting this engine in our hands. And they reduce our time to seconds, minutes, hours. That's too complicated. For us, we still live history. And for us, we still feel that 1,000 years are like one day before the Lord. So what are 2,000 years? It's the day before yesterday. This is our feeling. The day before yesterday that the young rabbi from Nazareth was hanging around with our boys and girls, with our elderly, were attending our funerals and our weddings, was watching our clouds, our fertile and our sterile fig trees. And he took all of that and made of them the parables of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ did not fall down from heaven. He came from Nazareth from our people. When I say our people, it implies that the nowadays Christians might be descendants, many of them, of the first Jewish community that converted to Christianity. And I say that without any pride or any shame, because the Jews, like me, are children of God. It was 2009 years ago when he called some fishermen around the Sea of Galilee. And because he spoke with such authority, they abandoned their nets and they, were, they went netting to fish human beings to the kingdom of God. And 50 days after his resurrection, while they were gathered in the upper room, doors locked, something happened. He, the man from Galilee, the man from Nazareth, fulfilled his promises to these Galilee people. Oh, we people of Galilee, we have forgot our roots and we don't pride ourselves enough to have him come out from our midst. They were gathered in the upper room when he said to them, what? Not the Holy Spirit. He sent to them his ruah, ruho, rih. He sent his wind. Not any wind, a strong wind. He stormed them. He cleansed their minds and he made them understand that for them there should be no privilege for Jew against Gentile. Oh, I wish 67 years ago some enlightened Christian leader would have stood courageously somewhere in Europe and said publicly there can't be privilege for German against Jew. And we are still waiting for the same leader to stay loud and clear in Israel. This situation cannot continue. There should be no more privilege for Jew against Palestinian, for man against woman, for Lord against slave. Do you know why? 
because you are all called to become adopted children of God, even you American Christians. <laughs> this is the situation. This is the new vision. This is the new invitation to the divine banquet of God. Who is invited after the day of the Pentecost? Sorry, brother Jews, if you are here. It's no more the Jews. It's not the Christians. Not yet the Muslims. So who was invited? It is only and exclusively man and woman. Every man, every woman with no exclusion. What do we do with the so-called chosen people? We go humbly to them and ask, are you men and women? If they say yes, we'll give them the good news. God loves you. So passionately, you're invited. But if they say we are not men and women, you will be facing a real problem. You don't know how? Don't you remember our Christian history? When we fought together about out of baptism there is no salvation, so good, so far so good. But what baptism? Reformed? Re-reformed? Or not yet reformed? I'm able to decide the Western world went to war for 30 years. Wars of religions to end by saying we all were wrong. All those baptized in the name of the God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are truly and rightly baptized. This is the first Christian community ever to exist. These are my forefathers. Who were they in the upper room? Some of them were Jewish. My forefathers. Again, I say that without any pride and without any shame. Because Jews are like me, created on the image with the likeness of God. Some of them were Romans. Some others were Greeks, my forefathers. And as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, others were Arabs. There was no American in the upper room. <laughs> you came just much, much later, few centuries later. This is the origin of Palestinian Christianity. Palestinian Arab Christian, I am also as strongly a citizen of the state of Israel. That completes the confusion for you. That has been confusing us for tens of years. Then we said, goodness, enough is enough. Is all that mere contradictions or there is a hidden hope somewhere where we can turn this contradiction into a complementarity, in a beautiful complementarity. 
and we are doing at our utmost for years and years to try to implement our dream of creating a unity within the existing diversity between Jews, Muslim, Christians and others in that small country of Israel. We want to build a mosaic and the mosaic is not built with one colored stone. You can do nothing with that. You have a picture, you want to build a mosaic, you go and buy all kind of colored stones and you put the first stone, you cut the second, you polish the third, you adapt the fourth till the stones are all in place. You look and say, my goodness, that is a beautiful picture. Imagine one stone would be missing. You look at that picture and say, ah, that is sad. One stone is missing. You forget the 99 stones and you see the missing one. And for me, that is the parable of the lost sheep that the shepherd abandoned 99 endangered on the mount and went to look for the lost one. Why is that? Because the lost sheep is important in itself. But also the community, the 99 will never be perfect without bringing back the lost sheep. You are important to your community. Humanity all the time loses its members by killing, by deprivation, by hunger, will be an imperfect humanity. I wanted to put an order in my affiliations. What am I above all and after, uh, first of all, am I a Palestinian? Am I an Arab? Am I a Christian? Or first of all, a citizen of Israel? It was easy to start with the problem of citizen of Israel. I could not consider myself above all citizen of Israel. I had a small problem with the state of Israel. I think it's after tomorrow that Israel will become 61 years old, only 61 years, and I am older than Israel. I am 69 years old. I did not immigrate into Israel at an early age. It's Israel that was created in my country when I was a young man. And I wish that Israel returned back the welcome we gave and not the other side. I was born in Galilee in a very peaceful, nice, beautiful Arab Christian village. We did not call ourselves by the name of family or neighbors. Each one called the others brother, sister, no matter which family he belongs. 
1948, my father, of good memory, gathered us children and said, children, within a few days, there are rumors we might see Jews coming to our village dressed in soldiers. They have machine guns, but they do not kill. Be not afraid. These are Jews who survived the plan of a certain devil called Hitler who tried to annihilate them and thank God he was not able to fulfill his satanic plans. Some survived and they are coming to our village. We need to show them that somewhere on this planet they are most welcome simply because they are our blood brothers. Be not afraid. We will give them our beds. We will prepare banquets for them. That's exactly what father, like all other fathers of families did. And few days later, the Israeli Jews came as army, as soldiers, we gave them our homes and we slept on the roofs of our houses for over 10 days. After which the officer, whose name was Manu, ordered all heads of families to come together. They obeyed, the army speaks. And he gave them the order to leave home, take wife and children, Lock the doors, give me the keys, and I give you a written promise within two weeks, you will return. They had nothing to say but to obey. I remember the day when we left. I carried a blanket on my shoulder and went, left the home, sad, and we went very close by under our own olive trees for two weeks. That was very pleasant for us kids. But after two weeks, all heads of families said enough is enough. They gathered again and went to see the other officer of the army. My father was with them. Sorry to tell you the truth. They went, but they never came back. Never ever came back. Later on we learned that they were loaded onto military trucks and driven from North Galilee to the neighborhood of the city of Nablus in the, in the West Bank. And they were given the orders, cross the borders and go away. This country is no more your country. If you try to return, you will be killed before you trespass the land of Israel. They left Nablus, went down the Jordan River, crossed the Jordan River, and that's not a problem to cross the Jordan River, ladies and gentlemen. This is the only river I know in the world about which there was much more ink spilled to describe it than there is water in it. You can cross it very easily. 
and they started their way of suffering, their diaspora, and they marched to Amman in Jordan, from there to Damascus in Syria, to Beirut in Lebanon, and they were stuck in those Arab countries and became the Palestinian refugees. Later on, they were dehumanized and became the Palestinian refugee problem. No human beings. Very few infiltrated back through the northern borders with Lebanon. Among them was my father, and that's how we knew what happened to them. Meanwhile, we found a room in a nearby village five kilometers away, an abandoned room of a family fled to Lebanon. We lived in that room waiting to return. We are 13 persons in a room that's four meters times five, that's 20 square meters. Father found us there. We did not stay still. We appealed to the Israeli High Court of Justice, 1949. The resolution was in our favor. We have the right to return. The army opposed. 1950, again, appealed. Resolution in our favor. 1951, for the third time, we had the third resolution of the highest court of justice of Israel. So we determined to leave our refugee refuge and go back home. And we started our march. When about to reach the village, we're on a hillside. We saw airplanes coming from nowhere, I don't know where from, and started raining bombs on our homes. And they destroyed almost all the homes. You've seen some of the pictures. We stood there and we started crying to heaven and to God. And that hillside, ladies and gentlemen, is called up till today the Baram people wailing wall. My father never encouraged us to settle accounts with the Jews. He never allowed us to think taking revenge against what they have done. My father's only wish was to be able to return and build his ancestral home and live there to be faithful to his ancestors since our family tree in that place goes back to the middle of the 16th century. My father was not given his basic rights. He died in the early 90s in Haifa. We carried him and buried him in the cemetery of our village. We return, but dead. We prefer to return alive. Maybe we'll find a new, some lost Jew in the neighborhood. We would love to invite him back. Come on, take our bed, take our food. You are our blood brothers. It's in this ambiance, in this society, that I was brought up. And my family always wanted that one of their sons, who were four brothers, 
and one sister, one of their sons becomes a priest. The elderly refused. The second one was Adam. If you send me to seminar, I will raise hell everywhere. <laughs> and the third one escaped from Palestine and went to Jordan to the family of this gentleman. For four months, father looked for his lost son and he found him in Jordan. He never accepted to come back before getting the promise he will not send. He will not be sent to seminary. Who remained? The youngest one. And I was the youngest. And father delivered me to the bishop. And slowly, slowly, to make a long story short, I developed this consciousness that to become a priest would be the best way for me to help restore the broken dignity of my people, to help restore their self-esteem. And I went, sent by the church to Paris, where I studied six years preparing for priesthood. We studied Bible, we studied theology, philosophy, anthropology, psychology, everything that was possible and impossible. And I confess now that I have forgotten everything I learned. <laughs> I only remember one thing. God is love. God does not kill. That's all I remember. The rest I leave it for you, for Europe. We Palestinians, by the way, are not that good philosophers or theologians. Do you know why? Because we have an obsession to tell time and again and again and again an exciting story. We share that with you in America, in Europe, in Australia, in Africa. We are obsessed to share with you a real story of the man from Nazareth who left us with an empty tomb and a risen Lord, a risen hope for humanity. 1965, I was ordained priest in Nazareth. And my bishop told me, Elias, now you go to Ebeline. Frankly saying, I did not know what Ebeline was. Was it a lady? Was it a place? Was it a village? I had no idea. And I drove from Haifa and drove and drove till I found myself on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. I did not find a belief. When I asked, they said, I are too far away. Go back. And I went there saying, for one month, that's okay, I will survive it. I did not know what I now know by practice even as being Archbishop. I did not know that bishops normally have a short memory. <laughs> they forget. They forget too easily. My bishop forgot me there and I forgot myself. I ended by staying 38 years in that village waiting for the month to finish. It never finished. And I don't know with what power 
the synod of my church who sits in Beirut who knew nothing about me that synod elected me to become the Archbishop of the largest Christian church in Israel. It's no secret that during the first three weeks after my nomination, I could not stop crying. What have I done to you, Lord, to put that responsibility on my shoulder? And I am still learning how to be the Archbishop for the Jews, for the Muslims, and for the Christians. It's an exciting job. It's a great vocation. Mainly when I think that among my dioceses, I have a man called Jesus Christ, a woman called Mary, twelve disciples, the apostles, the fishermen, who is the bishop including the Pope of Rome who can pretend having such parishioners. No one. It's such a pride to have them members of your community. They are great people, but they are very difficult to deal with. <laughs> I think it's with the grace of God I was able to survive in that village, very specially because when I went there, I expected to find a bedroom, an office, a toilet, <clears throat> nothing of that. I found myself with the first wagon bag that I brought with me from Germany and I had to sleep and to live in that first wagon for six months. Do not pity me, please. It was not difficult to live in the first wagon. In those times, I was not as big as I am now. I don't know, when you become priest and worse, when you become archbishop, you tend to put on and on and on weight. You invite us so much to such delicious food, we cannot say we don't want to eat. And the result is what we see now. My dear friends, I could go on and on. I will jump to 1981. I became aware that in Israel there remained a small Palestinian Arab minority. One million two hundred thousand Palestinian Arabs did not want to go outside their homes or their towns and when their towns were among the 460 destroyed or obliterated they agglomerated themselves in the neighborhood in some villages and I discovered that we were a very young community 75% of our Arabs in Israel were under 28 years old and 50% were under 14 years old it's still the case now I said, well, why don't I give my life to these 50% to provide them with the best education possible so that they can challenge the neighboring Jews, discuss with them, dialogue with them, and together find a solution for a common future. 
without education, that could not be done. I have already started opening public libraries or organizing summer camps. The last summer camp in 1980, we registered over 5,000 children who came from 30 different villages. And you know, among you, all, at least the Christians, when you are 5,000, you are entitled to a miracle of multiplication bread, right? <laughs> and I had the 5,000. But who would make the miracle? I am not a miracle doer. I needed not a normal Jesus Christ, but a super Jesus Christ. To make the multiplication bread three times a day for three consecutive weeks for 5,000 children of God. I believe in the power of prayer. When you abandon yourself in the providence of God, God would come to your help in His way. I resolved to organize 30 meetings, one in each village where these children came from, and to convene their mothers. And I asked each group of mothers to send us 10 mothers a day. And here I was, young Abu Nashakur, with 300 most beautiful mothers coming to prepare sandwiches and drinks for 5,000 children of God. They did it. They did it so easily. You would say, what a beautiful Christian community you have, Father Shakur. May I whisper to your ears, don't throw chairs on me. Most of those mothers were not Christians. Most of them were Muslims. Can I tell you that we Christians, we do not have the monopoly of doing good. And we do not have any exclusive control over the Holy Spirit. Blessed mothers. 1981, the need for education become became more and more urgent, more felt, we had no high school. And nobody would take care to build the high school in that isolated, remote village where you cannot go there by accident. You need to want to go there to find it. I decided to build the high school. And as a good citizen of Israel, a law-abiding citizen, except when the laws do not respect human rights, then I don't care. I applied for a building permit. Three weeks later, the answer came, denial. Oh, that's too easy. But I needed the school. I asked myself, Elias, what do you need? in order to have a school. Do you need a building permit or you need a building? I decided I needed the building. What remained is to make the construction without building permit and case or asura. <laughs> and that's what I did, ladies and gentlemen. I had to face the Israeli police. 
But I convinced myself that the Jewish police has something common with the Palestinian police, with the Syrian, German, American, French police. I convinced myself that always, unmistakably, behind the uniform of the policeman, you have a human being, not a monster. Please do not forget that. What I needed is to strip the police from his uniform to touch the human being. It's often possible. Sometimes it's very difficult because the human being might have been suffocated. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to go into details. I was 37 times in court, always for building permit. <laughs> 1986, the sole building we had was made for maximum 350 students. But we already have registered 700 plus students. The situation became intolerable. We needed to add some classrooms, some workshops, and a sports hall. And I applied again for building permit. They told me, you will have it. But you have been patient. You know, our bureaucracy in Israel is so slow. I understood that there will be a political decision than anything else. I left the authority busy with slow democracy and got myself busy with construction. A year later, the police came back. Someone meet to court, order us to stop the building. We stopped building and we started digging underground rooms in the rock. Because there is no law, human law, which can convince me Stop providing education for your children. Who said human beings have that authority to keep a segment of humanity in ignorance and in primitivity? At the same time, I started knocking on the door of every Israeli. I reached even the prime minister. Please help us to have a building permit. I wanted to finish with court. Nobody said, I don't want to help. But nobody helped or moved the finger. And then I started to understand, goodness, you are no more in the promised land. You are in the land of promises. <laughs> After six years, I got totally despair from having the building permit through begging. I decided to take the big means in order to reach a small building permit. And I realized that the shortest way to the heart of Jerusalem passes through Washington, D.C. <laughs> I bought a flight ticket and flew from Tel Aviv to National Airport. You are very far from Washington here. Those who do not know, be advised that National Airport is one of the very rare airports in the world which is in the center of a city. So I landed there, took a car, and drove to the residence of your then Secretary of State, James Baker. 
I said, I will pop into that residence. <laughs> they will do nothing. They might reject me and so what? I will try. I parked the car in front of residence. There is a baker and went to the door, knocked on the door. Secretary of State, as expected, was not there. What was astonishing is that his wife, Susan Baker herself, came to open the door. She was expecting one more American lady to come in. She opened, and here I was in front of her. Not a lady, a bard man, Middle Eastern, strange looking. She was shocked. She said, who are you? Said, Madam, I am another man from Galilee. <laughs> she said, but do you have an appointment with us? I said, Madam, we men from Galilee, we never make appointments, we make appearances. <laughs> Later on, bless her heart, she told me how confused she felt. <laughs> she surely did not want to let me in, and she was unable to kick me out. <laughs> she invited me not to the living room where there was much noise, but to the kitchen. Oh, they have a very large kitchen. I could spend my life there. <laughs> and she gave me something to drink, that I never liked. I don't know how you Americans can drink that so willingly. She gave me a glass of iced tea. Can you imagine? I had to swallow it. The smell is still in my mouth. I swallowed that out of politeness. And meanwhile, in a second, Susan said, I'm sorry, I have to put you out now because I am busy with 20 American ladies and she was taking me to the exit door. We are having, did she say, a Bible study hour. I said, what kind of Bible study hour you have, ma'am? She said, we are having a look on the so-called Sermon on the Mount. I said, well, good luck, I pity you. She said, why do you pity me? I said, how can you understand it? It was not written in your American slang. It was written in my Semitic language. And it's not an American who wrote that sermon the map. It's a man next door to my village, a peasant from Galilee. Try to understand what you want. And Susan, bless her heart, said, I see. Can you help us understand it better? Oh my goodness, what could I expect more than that? <laughs> this time I was reintroduced, ladies and gentlemen, not to the kitchen, but to the living room with the 20 American ladies. It took me two hours <laughs> to explain to them the eight first verses of the Sermon on the Mount that you in America call them sometimes the blessings, 
some other times the Beatitudes and when you want to be extravagant theologian you call them the be happy attitudes. <laughs> I'm referring to the book of George Shul who handed that book to me in Waco, Texas because I was a priest from Galilee so it's a pride to give him an explanation of the Sermon on the Mount. He was jogging and came to the house where I was. I said, George, I accept to, have, to take this book in my hands because you are a human being. But I tell you, this is the most anti-Christian title I saw in my life. Because my compatriot never said to his disciples, Ah, oh, happy you are because you are hungry and thirsty for justice. Imagine you have taken these beatitudes and went to Auschwitz, to Dachau, to Bergen-Belsen, and said to the Jews who were there, come on children, happy you are, blessed you are, because you are hungry and thirsty for justice. Ah, they would say even shut up now, <laughs> try to get us out from here and leave your predication for yourself. The same confusion I imagine. How can I use these words of Jesus Christ to the children of Gaza when I say, blessed are you because you are hunger and thirst for justice. Ah, oh, there will see goodness. Father Shakur, be reasonable. We don't want one more sermon. We want liberation and the right. When I learned, and I have the opportunity to learn 11 languages, I learned also the Aramaic language, and we have two texts of St. Matthew about the Sermon on the Mount. The one says, Ashrei, if we are Jewish brothers and sisters here, they know the rules of Ashrei, mean Osher and Yosher, and the second text says to Bahum, and brought together, do not mean happy or blessed, they mean get up, move, go out, do something, straighten up yourself if you are hungry and thirsty for justice. They do not mean sit up idle, contemplate peace. Peace needs no contemplators, ladies and gentlemen. Peace needs people who are proactive, who are committed, involved who accept to get their hands dirty to build peace. Get up, go ahead, do something. Get your hands dirty to build peace for the mighty one and for the powerless as well. After two hours, I left the bakers. Next day, I took the plane back home. A week later, the telephone rang in my office in Ibelin. It was Susan Baker. Father Shakur, can we pray together? My goodness, why not? <laughs> we prayed together on the telephone. I never imagined that there will come a day when I would be speaking with Almighty God on the telephone. You do that in America, good for you. I learned to do that from you. And this operation repeated this twice and more each month. And more than once, a third person would interrupt and say, Stop, both of you, 
It's my time to pray. It was your former Secretary of State, James Baker. After three months, I remember I did not go to Washington to drink iced tea or to explain the Sermon the Mount or to speak with God on the telephone. I went to Washington to beg for a building permit. I called the Bakers. Could you please write a letter to Shamir, Premier Shamir, encouraging him to give us a building permit for a sports hall and few classrooms? Susan Baker wrote a two-page type letter, showed it to her husband, and Jim Baker said, no, no, you will not send that. That might create a diplomatic crisis between the United States and Israel, and we do not need that now. It was just after Gulf War I. Give me that letter, Susan. I will co-sign it with you. By then I became their beloved Abuna. And I will take two books of Abuna Shakur and hand deliver them to Shamir. I promise you, I will not leave his office before securing the building permit to Abuna Shakur. This is how we got a building permit. Your Secretary of State, a year and a half later, decided to come and visit us in that school. When he arrived there, he got out from his car, he said, Abuna Shakur, I'm not coming to visit you. We see each other enough in Washington. I am coming to make an act of solidarity together with you for our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters in Israel to tell them that we mind to see them staying in their villages, in their churches, in their countries. Act of solidarity. How often have you been in Israel and you cared to make an act of solidarity in visiting the one or the other Christian communities dispersed all over Israel? Our main enemy now that risks to make us disappear totally is the ongoing massive immigration. We are now 1,9% of the population of Israel. But from all the immigration outside Israel to the whole world, 26% are Christians. And that's extremely alarming. We need to build something to slow down this murderous immigration abroad. We thought about our schools. This is the only way we can instill values and it's the only way we can hope, like we did in Ibn, to bring together our Christian youngsters with Muslims, with Jews and Druze and invite them to sit around the same tables facing, solving the same problems, finding the same things, then we can hope to ask them. And that's the only way to sit together and write together the common future they want for them and for their children. We have no other way, ladies and gentlemen. 
We are not condemned, Jews and Palestinians, to live together. We are trying to look at that as a privilege given to us to live together and we do not miss the point. We don't want to miss it. Simply because I do believe that Jews and Palestinians, despite all these wars, these horrors, these discriminations, apparent apartheid, the fear of Israel, we Jews and Palestinians do not need to learn how to live together. We need just to remember how we used to live together, how Jews used to live together in Muslim countries, very respected. To give you the example of Morocco, the Gestapo ordered the king of Morocco to deliver the 250,000 Jews of Morocco to the Gestapo. The Muslim king of Morocco said, I have no Jews in Morocco. They said, yes, you have 250,000. He said, these all are Moroccans. You want them to wear the yellow star? Okay, but give me the largest yellow star. I will wear it and every Moroccan will have a yellow star come and kill us all together. No Jew from Morocco to the pride of Morocco was delivered to the Gestapo. The history of Judaism in Damascus was a prestigious history since the destruction of the village of the Assyrians, Qumran, the Jews who were there did not want to go up to Jerusalem to live with the rest of the Jews. They found Damascus to be safer for them than Jerusalem. The Jews of Alexandria are a proverbial story of prosperity till Nasser came and confiscated the lands of wealthy Christians and wealthy Jews and distributed that to peasants and to farmers. We need just to remember how we used to live together. And to end, ladies and gentlemen, I have been too long, I know. But I traveled 12,000 miles to be able to address you with these words. So bear with me, please. Why do I share these stories with you? It's because I believe that every one of you can make a difference. A difference for the better. Uh, don't say I can't. You have done it. You have done it a few months ago when the old slave became the president of the United States. What do you want to be more powerful than that? And I expect you to operate this difference. Very special because I am very well known as an international beggar. I learned to beg. Please give me a favor. And I'm going back home tomorrow morning. I don't want to go empty hand for God's sake. So I'm coming to beg you. Help me. Help me. Don't 
start counting how many dollars you want to give me. I never beg for money. Your money is important. You can build a classroom, provide scholarship, buy books, computers, anything. It's vital, but it's not the thing I beg for. I beg you to change attitude, to perfect your stand. If you have Jewish friends here or in Israel, Jewish friends that might be very fanatical, that might be hating Palestinians, if you have such friends, for God's sake, I beg you, don't stop your friendship to these Jews. Continue giving them sympathy, friendship, and compassion. They need that more than ever before. Give them your money if you want. All the wealth of the United States, I would be only grateful. But please, if you have Jewish friends, that should never ever more mean that you have to be automatically against the Palestinians. You don't know us. Tell me, am I not the first Palestinian who has been given this privilege to stand in front of you while you're silent and I speak? You know lots about us from specialists who like to paint human beings. 67 years ago, my beloved Jewish brothers and sisters were labeled Shmutzi Galyude, dirty Jew. And several menus were killed till humanity realized that they were not the real dead. The real dead were the third drive and those who believed in it. I'm happy that it did not last after Second World War. But I'm sad to see that the horrible lady that had hid the face of the Jew was stuck on the face of us Palestinians who were and are labeled to be a nation of terrorists while in fact we are a terrorized nation. We paid with our country, with our independence, with our dignity to quiet down the bad conscience of the Western world. But brothers and sisters, if by any chance you have been in touch with a Palestinian, you knew some Palestinian families, if you have experienced their generosity, their hospitality, and their real suffering, if you have read my books, Blood Brothers, We Belong to the Land, or the third book, Hope Beyond Despair. And you came to sympathize with us Palestinians. And you decided to take our side. Goodness, why not? Do it. God bless you. Take our side. For once you would be on the right side, right? <laughs> but I'm very serious. If taking our side, we Palestinians, would mean that you would encourage us to hate the Jews. Or you would show understanding for our hate language sometimes. 
or for terror acts that some people who went into despair do. If that is your friendship to us, for God's sake, back up, we do not need your friendship. Because in becoming one-sided for us against our, our beloved Jewish brothers, what are you doing? You are reducing all your generosity to become one more enemy in that cruel battle. And we don't need any more enemy. We need one more common friend. Do you have the courage to be the common friend? Come forth. If not, please stay at home in peace rather to come forth reducing us both Jews and Palestinians into pieces. Weapons and dollars are not the key to the solution. It's human tolerance, humility, sharing that gives us hope. And whether you like it or not, sooner or later, we Palestinians and we Jews, we will find a way together. We don't want to keep hanging our children on the altar of human arrogance. Our children are born not to carry weapons and not to carry stones, but to build homes and to build the future for all of us. Thank you for your patience. last years of being able to travel in and out of the Middle East. We've been in uh, Bethlehem and Ramallah and Jerusalem and Nazareth and many places around the Middle East. We have a, uh, some papers in the back and if any of you would like to have an ongoing dialogue about any of these things, I'm not sure what we're going to do with this, but write your name and your email there and we'll figure out something. There are people that come through our town all the time. And uh, maybe we can have another gathering like this or some of our other friends. And so uh, there'll be some papers back on the back tables. They'll also take advantage of some of the uh, reading material that's there. So are you ready? Father Shukur? Yes. Okay. Does anybody have a question? Anybody have any? Oh, oh, I see that hand in the back. My name is Stephen Thomas Lewandowski. I'm very honored to hear your presentation your very charming presentation. And I thank the eldership of Scottsdale Bible Church for bringing one such as you into our presence. Thank you. It's uh, quite a delightful shock to me that I would once again be speaking to a Roman Catholic priest as uh, I grew up a Roman Catholic, but then uh, was baptized, started going to a Christian church once I started reading the Bible. That's okay. Only God is perfect. Praise the Lord. And along those lines, as you said, uh, you were asking for things. As iron sharpens iron, and certainly not in the sense of correction, because you're a well-revered man, I would suggest that uh, it was Peter the Jew who the Holy Spirit uh, 
took in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, not in the upper room. But you said that this was a conflict between two peoples who both were right. And I would suggest that uh, the arbitrator be not man, but God. Because we serve an everlasting God, as the psalmist has said. And in the book of Isaiah, I love the word everlasting because in John 3.36, it says that we have an everlasting promise. He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. And then, even in the book of Genesis, God uses that word everlasting and He makes that everlasting promise of Abraham, who He later renamed Abraham. And He says that word covenant 11 times and everlasting 4 times for the land. So perhaps it's God who brings, who should be the arbitrator and not man. And thank you for being here. God bless you. Thank you. I have a very humble advice to give you and to give to everybody. I notice you have studied somehow your Bible and you can cite verses by heart. This is very great. Please do not read the Bible with a selective way to choose phrases, sentences, verses that suit your opinion. In the Bible it's also written, God does not exist. If you take it out of context, then the Bible is a book of atheism. But please read what's written before. The foolish says God does not exist. So please refrain from reading the Bible selectively. Otherwise I can come to you with Isaiah first, second, third and fifth. I can come to you with the book of uh, Kings about the vine of neighbor. But what for are these selective readings? The summary of all the Bible are the Ten Commandments. And one of the most important among these commandments is God says, kill not. He did not say to the Jews, kill not the Jew. Kill not. And I had a problem with Joshua who came with Moses from the desert and they reached Mount Nebo those among who was at Mount Nebo it's a beautiful place where you can look down you see Jericho all the villages around you see Mount of Olives in Jerusalem it's a fabulous place Joshua saw Jericho after 40 years of wandering from one desert to another desert. He said, that's a great spot. I will have it. And he vowed all the inhabitants of Jericho and the neighborhood to be slaughtered in the name of God, poor God. 
And that's what they did. They massacred everyone in Jericho except the prostitute. And that was their mistake. Not for having, having saved the prostitute, but for having slaughtered everybody else. And the crown there is that they registered all that in the name of God, who a few months ago told them, kill not. How can we manage all that? For me as a Christian, I have no problem with God. I have a problem with Joshua, who committed his crime and registered it like all other pagan leaders on that time in the name of his God. So please stop reading the Bible in any selective way. And I don't think it's wise to use biblical arguments to justify any modern national existence even if it is Israel. I wish we had more time, brother. But who knows? Come to Galilee. Yeah, okay. I have to disagree with some of the things you said, particularly the last one at this time in the United States. You said more or less don't go by the Bible strictly, but by our times. Unfortunately, I'd have to compare that to our Constitution, which is being raped and attacked by Supreme Court judges with freedom of speech and freedom of religion in this country. Uh, if we leave our Constitution and leave our Bible, well, I think we'd be barbarians. My other thought was, uh, in all due respect, you went through a lot of personal problems, a lot of, but let me say this, in one sense, I'd have to, your group of Palestinians, I would compare with the Mexican-Americans that come in because they all had this land at one time, those waters sold and taken from them. They can say they're returning to the land too. Uh, in 1948, Israel got desert land. But the, your personal group of Palestinians that you call have nothing to do with the other ones. I think you're privileged to be in Israel for freedom of religion and speech to some extent. If your main problem is you can't get a building permit, uh, you live in Sun City or other places, that's a trivial problem. I think you would have a lot worse time if God forbid that the Palestinians that are shooting rockets at Israel, at the Muslims, the Christians in Israel, took over that country and used their law. There's, I, I, I don't know the tie is, secure law, I don't know your name that, uh, I don't know what, what the tie is, but their law is so harsh on women and children and Christians. I agree with you, Morocco and a couple other countries had strong leaders but I do think that generally speaking, anyone of us that knows missionaries in Muslim countries, the missionaries suffer greatly. Okay, thank you for your reflections. I'm happy that you disagree with my points because I'm not uh, perfect. I gave you my opinion, but I refuse 
to compare your constitution with the Bible. I was once with your former president, Carter, in a restaurant in Houston with the Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. At a certain moment, President Carter said, Father Shakur, can I help you and your Palestinian people? I said, surely you can. Said, what can I do? I said, do you have an easy entrance to the White House? <laughs> he said, yes, relatively easy. I said, please, go there tomorrow and convince President Reagan of good memory to stop shipping weapons and money to the Middle East. And if he needs to ship something, why doesn't he ship us two or three thousand copies of your constitution? This is the best thing you have, you Americans. But it's far from being compared with the Bible that is not the constitution of the United States or of Israel. It's a human legacy. No one is allowed to self-appropriate the prophets or the Old Testament. We know the special ties with the Jews, but these ties are not stronger than the ties of Muslims with the Old Testament or with Christians. I hope we have more time to discuss that. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, Okay, so uh, we'll do this for maybe about 10 more minutes, and I'm sure there's a question that somebody has. So, you have a question? Okay. Father Shakur, good evening. Thank you very much for coming and explaining your side of the story. And obviously, the Balfour Agreement in 1917 is flawed, and the creation has its limitations. So, we've just had the pleasure of visiting Israel, and uh, it was a wonderful trip, and an incredibly enjoyable and a life-changing experience. There are two things I'd like to ask you. One is Hezbollah's position um, and the Palestinian relationship with that, which seems to be a rather troublesome point. On the other side, sir, was one of the things that was plainly obvious to us is on the where the Israelis were, it was fertile. It was what? Very fertile and productive. And yet when we went into the West Bank, we found it was somewhat dirty, dusty, and, and candidly lacking. And it's very hard to understand why they didn't look over the wall and say, well, what are they doing that's different to what we're doing? And, and then, I'm sorry to make two points. The last one was that our guys were telling us that rockets are still coming out of uh, Gaza, which is a little troublesome from them. And on the human side, I can understand them getting just a little upset at that. Could you answer this? Oh, surely. Thank you. Uh, these are rather political questions that need an answer. Uh, I don't think that the Palestinians can be treated as a unity 
with or against any Arab resistant movements because Palestinians have been massacred very often much more in the Arab countries than in Israel itself. To give you an example, Tamizata refugees camp, 65,000 refugees massacred by Syria and Israel from the sea. Sabra and Shatila, well-known tragedy. Black September in Jordan, in one month, 20,000 Palestinians were massacred. So please do not inflict on us everything that's good or bad in the Arab countries. You know Hezbollah is not a Palestinian resistant movement. It's a Lebanese resistant movement against the presence, occupying presence of Israel in South Lebanon. We hope that this will be solved. I think the war with Lebanon against Hezbollah was so revealing. By all means it was a destructive war. Israel destroyed over 15,000 buildings in Lebanon. But at the same time, they were unable to reduce any power of Hezbollah. They strengthened Hezbollah, not willingly. But something has been destroyed in Israel. The myth of the invincibility of the army of Israel. We did not win the war. And what was destroyed is our psychological insurance that no matter what or when there would be any war, Israel would be able to export the war outside its borders. This time, they hardly were able to protect us in Haifa, in Khadera, in Nazareth, in Safed. Much has been destroyed. And to our feeling, unfortunately, the same operation repeated itself in Gaza with Hamas. They destroyed so much. I was there. What I have seen is really shaking every sense of human dignity. A systematic destruction of every infrastructure and of human beings. But who went stronger from the war in Gaza? Hamas. Hamas is stronger than ever before. Maybe, and I pray, and I say that to the Defense Minister of Israel, we pray that we would understand one day that with military means we can destroy and create more enemies. Military do not have always the solution. 
And I say to that minister, I hope the day will come when you will stop believing that you are the 51st state of the United States. You're not. Start realizing that you are the 21st state of the Middle East. You will try instead of building walls to build bridges with the neighboring Arab countries and you will solve the problem so relatively easy. Wrongs? Oh yes, there are so many wrongs on all sides. It is believed that Israel created the movement Hamas to break the power of the PLO. But with the time going, Israel made peace with the PLO. And the baby born Hamas, nobody could kill it. And now it's very strong. They have the control over, over, over Gaza. Politics, although needs courage, it can be a very dirty thing to do. So, just a question, why is Israel fertile and yet the West Bank... Oh yeah, that's a very good question, sir. I wish you don't answer it. You go to the West Bank, the best lands that are planted two or three times belong now to the settlers. Why that? Take Gaza when Israel was in Gaza. 85% of the water of Gaza was given to 3,000 settlers and 15% of the water for one million and a half citizens. And now, why West Bank? Jerusalem. East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. You go from one street to another, you have the impression you pass from the 21st century to the 10th or 11th century. Because they are deprived of means to clean their streets. They're like all our Arab villages in Israel. The Arab villages get one-fourth of the subsidies than Jewish villages get. And when one-fourth of that, you can do almost nothing, my dear friend. I did not want to speak about that. I did not want to mention about my number identity card being 02 while the Jew is 01. This is our dirty laundry. I will wash it back there in Israel, not in front of foreigners. But you raised the question, you obliged me to give you a simple answer. Please, I think we give the gentleman the question after the last. Yeah, one more question, because it's 9 o'clock. Uh, I don't need the mic. I just do football coaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they can't hear you in the back. Uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for the work you've done in, in education and in the schools that you've set up. and and the, the wonderful work you have with that, and I, I applaud you greatly for that. Um, and you mentioned something about uh, specifically looking at, at Bible passages, 
And you also mentioned that you, you have a real struggle with Joshua. But as I look at uh, what was written what, what, uh, in the book of Joshua, Bible passage, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, and, says, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho in your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. So it would seem to me that your problem is not with, with Joshua, but your problem is with the Lord. Well, it's your interpretation, sir. I don't want to go into that. But I think Joshua was in no way different from any other leader in those times. If you can give me one leader all over the Mediterranean on those times who made peace or went to war on his own name, even the pagans never went to war in their own name, in the name of their gods who were silent. And in that respect, Joshua never went to war or to peace. He always believed it's his God who told him that. This is a problem for interpretation. And I do believe that God will say in the Ten Commandments, kill not, could not contradict himself so severely to order Joshua to kill all these people of uh, Jericho. You know what were, was their mistake? Their sin, their land was fertile. Thank you. I think that's going to have to be it. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Great to hear Father Shakur.